Let's uh, continue our series in Romans then, Romans 9, verses 30 through to 10, verse 4. Uh, Imagine that you are watching a film, then right at the end, as these things tend to happen, right at the end, something happens, something or someone is revealed that suddenly makes sense of everything else that has happened. Light is shed on every detail. It's that ah moment. Of course. That's why they showed this earlier. That's why so and so said that. That's what such and such a thing really meant all along. You know those moments? Of course, there's always the possibility that often like me, you're the one scratching your head saying, but I don't understand. Well, some smug know-it-all next to you tries to explain. The sad fact that Paul is tussling with in these chapters is that for the majority of his fellow Jews, that ah moment has not yet come. The penny hasn't dropped. And that raises many questions for him, but also for those he's wanting to to uh, respond to his gospel and support him as he preaches his gospel. Has God deserted his people Israel? Can he be trusted to keep his word? Is he acting unfairly? Now, whereas the uh, previous verses that we looked at before, they concentrate on God's sovereignty, his freedom to act, these next verses approach more from a human perspective. It's because of their heart attitudes that people are excluded from good standing, good relationship with God. According to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, verses, uh, chapter 9, verses 6 to 29, explain why anyone is saved, whereas verses 30 to 32 explain why anyone is lost. So we have this word righteousness throughout this passage. It's dotted throughout the passage. Let's remind ourselves, it's a word that's come up a lot in this book. Let's remind ourselves that it is a word with different layers of meaning. We can talk about God's righteousness, which uh, we could think about as God's straight edge, his perfect goodness. But also part of that perfect goodness is the fact that he can be absolutely trusted to keep his promises. His righteousness has that sense of his faithfulness to covenant promises. For us, righteousness is about us being in a good standing before God. To initially, yes, to receive a not guilty verdict from him, but more than that, now welcomed to share God's life to enjoy relationship with God, to be included in God's covenant family, whom he has promised to save and to bless and to live among. In chapter 9, uh, verses 30 to 31, Paul gives a summary statement of the issue here. What shall we say? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith, but Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness who pursued righteousness by following the law that God had given them, by trying to follow the law that God had given them, they'd not attained it. Uh, Tom talked last week about uh, 
the Reading supporter who turns up to the uh, VIP box at the Mad Stad only to find it full of Millwall fans. And so now it seems the community of God's people seems to include many Gentiles, many Gentiles, not all Gentiles. When he says the Gentiles, he's talking about some Gentiles, not all of them, uh, non-Jews that is, while many Jews are not included and not there. They've not yet been declared righteous. They've not been, they are not at present included within that uh, family of God's covenant people. Even though historically, these Gentiles have shown no interest. They've been despising of Israel, dismissing God's people, dismissing Israel's God. And yet, as Paul and others have preached the gospel, the good news of the one true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, that through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, this God has provided a way of salvation for all, while some Gentiles have recognized that. They've recognized that they are sinners. They've turned in repentance and in faith, and they've been saved. Whereas the majority of Jews despite their status of being God's chosen special people, despite their privileges, despite their responsibility, despite the calling they have, despite their whole heritage and their culture and their codes of behavior based on God's law, despite their sacrificial systems being all about keeping in good standing with God, pleasing God, they have not attained this righteousness. It seems topsy-turvy. Why has this happened? Well, says Paul, it's not because the Jews are apathetic about this. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 2. No, he says they're zealous for God. Their relationship to God really mattered to them. But interestingly, he says their zeal is not based on knowledge. That's curious. Because of all the people in the world who had knowledge about God, you'd think it would be Israel. They'd been given special revelation about God through their history, through their scriptures. But Paul says in chapter 10, verse 3, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God, or the righteousness of God, and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Righteousness that comes from God is, I think, better rendered the righteousness of God there. It was God's righteousness, his reliability, his trustworthiness uh, to keep his promises. That was the key thing. That's what Israel should have known to rely on. But instead, uh, they've tried to establish their own righteousness, following rules to use as credit to earn God's favor. But that was always an impossible goal. Like somebody vainly and desperately trying to scramble up a very steep and slippery slope, intently searching for hand and footholds. But every time they reach out, they, every time they try to pull themselves up, they simply slip back down again. And so intent are they to find a way up themselves that they don't notice the outstretched arm reaching down, waiting to pull them up. Or perhaps out of pride, 
deliberately ignoring that arm. I'm sure we've all been there with children or with ourselves when, when somebody's tried to help us up a slope or something like that and we've studiously ignored the arm because we can do it ourselves. Thanks very much. We're big enough. Our pride is offended by the offer of help. And Paul is saying that that seems to be the case with the majority of Jews at that point. They did not submit to God's righteousness, says Paul. Determined to do it themselves, they did not accept and rely on his trustworthiness, his faithfulness. Or maybe just assuming that as they were Jews, that righteous status was theirs by dint of birth regardless of their pride and self-sufficiency. And so they'd missed it. They missed the arm reached down to help them. And before we sit in judgment on them for that, before we, we think, how could they do that? However, we should recognize that in this, they are simply representing the pride and self-sufficiency of all humanity. Their attitude is our attitude. However, some Gentiles, having been completely oblivious, their precarious situation has suddenly dawned on them as they've heard the gospel preached. They've gratefully grasped the outstretched arm and they've been pulled to safety. The pennies dropped for them, but not for those unbelieving Jews. Paul quotes from two Old Testament passages at the end of chapter 9. They're from Isaiah's prophecy. They're in Isaiah chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 28. Chapter 8, if you look at it at some other time, you'll see that it's an appeal for Israel to trust in the Lord's holiness, to trust in his trustworthiness, his faithfulness, rather than running off consulting mediums or spiritualists or, or going to re- trying to rely on the might of other nations to help them. Go for, the, go for sanctuary to the Lord, the prophet says. Don't go anywhere else. Go to the Lord. Chapter 28 uh, pictures them trying to build a ladder of works. And the phrase crops up, do and do, rule on rule, to encapsulate their legalistic attitude to trying to get a righteousness for themselves. So turning God's law into a tick list and, and actually in, in terms of ex concentrating on external observance to the extent that they missed the inner heart reality and the whole purpose of those laws. They missed the whole point. And in both passages, God is pictured laying a cornerstone or a foundation stone on which he will build his temple, uh, uh, a community of his people where he will dwell in the middle, dwelling, God's dwelling place among his people. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told clearly that this cornerstone is Christ. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here. Jesus, the Messiah, that is the stone he's talking about. And when people put their trust in him, then they will never be put to shame. They see him, they see the stone and they say, oh, of course, I see how that that is shaped specially to fit so that the whole building can be built around it. It makes sense. Everything else was pointing to this stone all along. But others, well, the penny doesn't drop. And in their pride, they look past Jesus and they end up stumbling over him, barking their shins on him and stumbling to their destruction. And Paul is saying, with tears in his eyes, 
that's what's happening to my fellow Jews who don't believe. And he's torn with that. It upsets him so much. We see that passion in his words. Verse 4, he says, uh, chapter 10, verse 4, he says, Christ, the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Some people think, think that this means that when Christ came, he abolished the law, he did away with the law. And it's certainly true that, for instance, in Mark chapter 7, uh, he consciously did away with the food laws, the, the list of things that, that his people were allowed and were not allowed to eat. Uh, Mark tells us that there he declares all foods clean. Uh, um, that's what Mark says. But interestingly, it, uh, Jesus says this in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This word, the end, the end of the law, end, telos, is the Greek word. And it does have that sense of goal or even fulfillment. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. Uh, The Old Testament law was designed all along to prepare the way and to point to Christ. It was headed for the goal of Christ. Christ fulfills the law. You remember when Jesus came to be baptized, uh, uh, John wasn't keen on doing it. He thought, I can't baptize Jesus. But, but Jesus says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And that sums up Jesus' life, actually. Jesus' life was about fulfilling all righteousness. The law provided God's people with a framework to live in good relationship with a holy God. But God's people, being sinful, could not live that way. But here comes Jesus, the Messiah, representing God's people. And on their behalf, where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds, remaining faithfully obedient throughout his life, loving God, loving his neighbor, that that summary of the law that he himself uh, quotes Uh, perfectly embodying the lifestyle to which the whole law points. He fulfills the law in his life. And then, of course, his sacrificial death. Think of all those animal sacrifices laid down in the law in the Old Testament to atone, given to atone for sin, to wipe out the guilt of the people. But any thinking Jew would surely ask, well, how can the death of an animal atone for my sins, for the sins of a human. Well, when Jesus appears, John the Baptist says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's the ah moment. Of course, all those sacrifices, they were always pointing to how God would deal with sin once and for all. Signposts pointing to the sacrifice. And when offered in faith, what people were effectively saying was, Lord, I've sinned, I know I've sinned, I know I cannot make up for it. I can't just work harder to make up for that. I can't make atonement. But in offering up this sacrifice, I am trusting in faith that you will find a way of doing so. And God did find a way when he sent his son to the cross. 
And then Jesus' resurrection life, um, his life to which all true believers are joined by faith to be raised up to and empowered with the same spirit that Jesus was anointed with, that Jesus poured out on the day of Pentecost. And so that we begin to transform, be transformed into his likeness and more and more enabled to live the kind of life to which the law pointed. Loving God, loving others. And once again in this we see, as we've talked before, we see a narrowing down leading to a widening out. The whole purpose of the law concentrated on Christ and fulfilled in Christ. And so those who trust in him freed from sin's chains of guilt, being in good standing with God, are then empowered to live out the lifestyle of God's kingdom, which was what the law pointed to all along. Righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Every page, every letter of the Old Testament law, indeed every letter of the whole of the Old Testament points to him, points to Christ. In the next verse, which is not in my passage, so I shouldn't be dealing with it, but it it, it does say this. Moses describes in this way, the righteousness is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. It's a quotation from Leviticus 18, verse 5. The man who keeps the law fully will live by them. Or by them, by by them will he live. But no man can keep the law fully. Ah, but there is a man. The man. The man who does these things will live by them. And when we put our faith in the man, then we get to live too by his fulfillment of of the law, by his righteousness. Three things to take away from this as we as we wrap up this morning. First of all, well, we just have to worship, don't we? We have to worship God and his son, Jesus Christ, as we, as we see the glorious plan that he's of, his, of salvation that, that has come to fulfillment in Christ. He is the man. And we bow before him and we worship him. Jesus is God's righteousness revealed, as the song says. In him we see the image of the invisible God in all his perfection, all his goodness, all his justice. And we also see the culmination of God's absolutely trustworthy covenant faithfulness. In him all the promises of God are yes and amen. And we worship him. And we also see how God has remained the just judge of all the earth who deals with sin. He takes it seriously. He punishes sin. He's not lowered his standards. He's not swept sin under a celestial carpet. No, he has exposed sin and he's punished sin. And that is such good news because otherwise sin would go on spoiling and ruining forever. If God just said, oh, it doesn't matter, I'm a God of love, I'll just let the sin go, that's what would happen. But he hasn't done that. But wonderfully, in his wonderful wisdom, God has found a way in Christ of justly dealing with sin while graciously giving those who believe forgiveness and new life. 
and we worship him for it. Righteousness. In him, in Christ, we become included in this good standing, the good relationship he has with his Father. In Christ, there is no barrier between us and coming into his presence as he longs for us to do. The thing that stops us is our pride. If we refuse to turn. His righteousness covers us. He enjoys his Father's presence continually. And if we are attached to him by uh, by faith, then we come in on Christ's coattails. We get in on Jesus' pass. Jesus is seated in the VIP lounge of the Father's presence. And he turns to the security guards and he says, These guys, Paul, Dan, and Clive, and Pam, and Kate, they're with me. Let them in. They're with me. Let's fall at his feet and worship him because of that. There's a second thing right there too. God has provided righteousness for everyone who believes. And John Calvin said that uh, the first step to obtaining righteousness is to renounce our own righteousness. So stop trying to scrabble up the hill yourself. Stop relying on how good you are, how respectable you are. Stop saying, well, I go to church. I give to charity. I'm better than most. Going to church and giving to charity is a great thing to do, but don't build your self-righteousness on that because your very pride in those things, your self-righteousness will keep you unrighteous. What about the indwelling envy and hatred? How are you going to deal with that by giving more? What about the resentment? What about the selfishness? What about the pride? Instead, grab hold of his outstretched arm reaching down to you. Don't stumble over the stone of Christ. Instead, build your life in faith on him. And ask yourself this, if you're unwilling to do this, ask yourself this, if you could find a way of saving yourself Why on earth would God have sent his son to die? What a completely unnecessary luxury that would be. The cross would be a despicable waste. The very cross itself lays low your self-righteousness. Stop trusting in yourself. Put your faith in Christ and be saved. And thirdly, Paul says he's praying. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites, for his fellow Jews, is that they may be saved. Johann Bengel says that Paul's continual prayer for Jews is proof that he did not think their present rejection of Christ was final and closed. They still have the opportunity to turn and be saved and And they still do today, as we all do. And surely, as we said about uh, chapter 9, verse 1, where Paul 
says, I'm not lying, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Surely as we said about that, we see, as we see Paul's heart, we see a reflection of God's heart. God's desire. And so this is a prompt to us to pray, isn't it? To pray with passion for the same thing. With earnestness and passion. As we pray for the whole world, to pray especially for the Jews today. With no anti-Semitic attitude of smugness or pride or, or, or dismissal. How on earth could they have missed this? This sort of thing. That's based on self-righteousness. That's, that's disdain. As if we deserve the grace that we have received. How can we be, how can we be uh, disdainful when we know how much grace we've received? Let's pray for Israel. Let's pray for Jews today. That more and more we'll see Jesus. And say, So it was about him all along. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what we see of Paul's heart here. We thank you that as he unravels the glorious gospel that he preaches, with all his, his massive theological brain, his deep understanding, this is no dry, and dust, uh, dry as dust thesis. This is no mere cerebral theology. We see his beating heart and we see his agony over the unbelief of his fellow Jews. And Lord, we see that today as we agonize over all who who don't believe. We realize that we only believe, those of us who do believe, because you've given us us faith. And we don't know why, because we don't deserve it. But Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth of this. But our prayer is that more and more we'll see Jesus as the culmination of all that you are doing in history and as the future of the human race. And Father, we pray for more and more to turn to you. We pray especially for those who are working amongst the Jewish people. We pray for Messianic Testimony and other organizations that are looking to engage with Jews who are working in Israel, elsewhere throughout the world where, where uh, the Jewish people are. And Lord, are just seeking to help them see Jesus. And we pray that as he is lifted high, people will turn and believe. In Jesus' name, amen.